Now, this is a bit of review for some of you because I actually showed these uh, pictures during graduation, but they fit the sermon for what I'm going to teach on from in Psalm 2. Again, we're, the, the title of this sermon series is The Final Great Awakening. And we've experienced that the first Great Awakening eclipses the second by far. But regardless, and it did, by the way, in the early 1700s, set our nation up to become a na- one nation under God. I mean, that is how thoroughly impacted our nation was. I'm not sure if you've studied our, our, our nation's early history in the 1700s, but God purposely brought an awakening that set us up so that around 40 to 50 years later, those, that generation constitution carved out that was truly a God-given constitution. The preamble they call the uh, Declaration of Independence absolutely focused on Jesus Christ. So anyway, I, I, I want us to talk about this awakening because scripture, I do believe, speaks of a great awakening. The question, though, is how do we get from here to there? How do we get from when when you were lost in your sin, how did, and the truth is, some of us, some of us have kind of wandered off the beaten path, as it it were, and God today is calling you back, but my question is, what are we going to do about it? How do we get from here to there? Because we are in a spiritual battle that I'm going to be talking about in just a minute. Okay. So how many of you, when you go to a map, you you think you're in the right place, and when you look at the map, you realize, oh my, we're going to need to start in the right place. The question, though, is what is your goal, and how are you going to get there? So I'm going to call this one Billy's Journey. We've all seen this in Family Circus, in which Billy is told to do something by his mom, and in this case, it's to take the mail out, correct? Mailbox, he's been so distracted, he probably put a mile on his sneakers just to get to the front mailbox, and by the time he gets there, well, mailman's gone. I call this getting distracted. I've been distracted many times. In your spiritual walk, though... I bet you you've been distracted. As, a, as an unbeliever lost in your sin, I bet you you were totally distracted and caught up by the things of the world. This next one, but you always end up feeling bad for him because the roadrunner always gets the best of him. And I'm going to call this getting dead. Because as we are going about on our journeys, and excuse me for those of you who love the roadrunner, I'm going to make him analogous to the devil. But the truth, <laughs> there's some truth in that, really. But the roadrunner, the devil, has attacked you, and Scripture actually says that you are dead in your transgressions and sins. As an unbeliever, outside, dead. Yeah, been there, done that. So this next one, this is what I will call the map quest journey. You see that the road crosses over a river. The problem is uh, the bridge was never built. Been there, done that following MapQuest, and what happens? I call this getting lost. The truth is, as we are journeying from our pilgrimage of being lost in the world, we're trying to find get more lost. Is that a possibility? Just Google MapQuest. Getting more lost. This next one, the last one, is what I'm going to have us spend our time on, and this is the direct journey. It means breaking through walls. It means doing things that are unconventional, at least to you. And God, I believe, is going to show us a way to do that in Psalm 2. 
This is the direct journey. And the truth is, with this empty way of life, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are death. And we, have, we were lost. And some of you sitting here this morning, still outside of what we're going to talk about concerning this amazing redemptive plan of God, you're still lost. You're distracted, dead, lost, and Jesus today is inviting you into this going to be direct route, and the Spirit of God, I pray, is going to speak to your heart, and it's going to call you to pursue Jesus with passion once again. Many times, though, when we are searching as, as sinners lost in our sin, we kind of put God on a shelf. And if you were like me, you had a Bible on a shelf that collected dust, right? And that's a believer. I thought it was a believer. But I'm not, I'm not saying I was an unbeliever because my Bible collected dust. No, my relationship with God collected dust because it wasn't even there. I thought it was, and it wasn't. I was pursuing religion rather than a relationship with Jesus Christ. And God had to show me the direct journey. So if you're taking sermon notes, then I'm going to encourage you, this sermon is entitled The Direct Journey. Now we're in a war zone, the devil of this direct journey in how God is leading us from here to there. I realize, though, that over time, even though this has become our journey and we've accepted Christ, we believed in him, he has begun this amazing transformation, it's easy to begin to wander off the path and stray. And if that's where you're at today, I pray the Spirit of God would speak to your heart, call you back. Where are you? This is called a, this is a Psalm of David, even though the superscription underneath Psalm 2 does not say that in your Bible. It's quoted in Acts 4. We're going to look at that, and they attribute it to David. <clears throat> Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. This is the nations. This is their people saying, let us throw off God's restraints, God's fetters, God's chains. Verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion. He said to me, he is my son. Today I've become his father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, and this is how the psalm concludes, in view of all of this, in view of the raging of the nations and their rebellion and throwing off the chains, and especially with regard to David, it says, you, all of you nations, I'm giving you to him. So here's his advice. He's, how's he going to conclude? Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. And maybe we could even say those who are distracted, dead, and lost in their sin. Be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed 
are all who take refuge in him. Now, if you were to go to 2 Samuel chapter 8, you would actually get a picture of what David is reflecting on here. In that chapter, David, well, two chapters before, David was anointed over the entire nation of Israel, southern kingdom Judah and northern kingdom Israel. He begins now in chapter 8 to conquer the surrounding nations, Phoenicia, Aram, which would include Damascus, all the way up to the Euphrates River, by the way, all the way up there. Uh, he's also going to be conquering uh, Gershon, Gesher, excuse me. Uh, Gesher actually stayed at Galilee, or the, uh, not Galilee, but on the other side of the Sea of Galilee was during Jesus' day, what's commonly called the Decapolis. Jesus ministered there, feeding the 5,000, and says that would be Gesher. Ammon, Moab to the far east, Edom to the southeast, Amalek to the south, and Philistia to the southwest. And David conquered these nations, that chapter tells us, and he secures, he conquers all of those nations, so they're at peace with him now. They make a treaty with him, and consequently, his borders are kept safe because of this. Those nations now become a buffer zone. But some of them would rebel, and, and we read about that in the next few chapters. Edom, for example, and David have to go, had to go in and quiet the revolt and put many of them to death. But he did this to secure his borders of not like this. And many of them would revolt. And so we have a picture here of these, these nations revolting against him their rebellion, and then God rebukes them in his anger, and he terrifies them. He said, look, I have established my king on or in Zion on actually called God's son because he's his anointed one. Now, the Hebrew here is Mashiach. We pronounce it Messiah. And we actually begin to, as we read through this, see something happening, even from the very first verse, but especially by verse 7, because we realize this isn't just a psalm of David. This is what's called a messianic psalm, a psalm about the coming Messiah. And that coming Messiah's name is? Jesus. Thank you. So this is a psalm about the promised Son of God who came Almost a thousand years later, a thousand years later, and so first, in the context of King David, the nations are called to submit to him, and, de and when they're rebelling, God says, hey, my boy, that's my son. You need to listen to him. I am giving you as his inheritance to him, as, a, as his very own possession. That's me. So you better line up here, okay? These are my people, my chosen people. And then there's a little bit of advice right after it said, and with that iron scepter, crush them like pottery. Now, I just said that this was a messianic psalm, didn't I? 
Turn with me to Acts 4. But doesn't that sound awfully strange that Jesus would rule with an iron scepter, that he would dash the nations to pieces like like pottery? How would he do this? Realize, well, okay. I thought I had marked it. I didn't. Here we go. Acts chapter 4. It's after some persecution, they've come back to like a home base in Jerusalem. They're praying, and they actually quote from this psalm in verse 25. It says, you spoke in prayer. They're saying to God, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people anointed one? Verse 27, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, who, David? No, he died a thousand years ago. Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You see, this is a messianic psalm. Jesus is the anointed for him to rise again from the dead. But in the present day, let me just, let's just realize the nations and you and me, before we came to Christ, we were conspiring. We had a plot against God. There was something in us that knew that there was God, but we refused to follow him. We refused to submit to his, and we just, we, it says we, they threw off their fetters. See, that's how the nations viewed David. We're enchained as God's man of power for the hour, if you will. God's anointed one, he was going to bring peace. He had a plan. It was God's plan. But the nations, in their own sense of personal sovereignty, and might I also add self-righteousness, thinking that they were right, Israel is wrong, they revolted. And so we... As well, even in our sin, God is showing us the direct journey, and we are wanting to get distracted. We are wanting to get getting. We are seeking after the things of this world, and we are just. God is saying that is not the way I want you to do life. That's not the journey I want you. That's not the thing I want you to be giving yourself to. And we are thinking, you know what? I don't care what you think. I realize that you're God in all of this, but I think, look how much joy it brings me. Look how much happiness it brings me. And all I have to say about that is, really? Really? Is it? Does it? I'm going to call that into question. We're going to come back to that. And so we are like these nations. In, in our rebellion, we threw off God's restraints. We said, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. Now, I want us to see something here, because God, just about Jesus, if, as a matter of fact, if you were to turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, here's what you would find. It says, he will be great, referring, this is Gabriel the angel speaking to Mary, the mother of Jesus, or soon to be mother of Jesus. Referring to Jesus, he says, he, he, Jesus will be great and will be called the son and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is now the anointed one. Jesus is the one who is 
going to be given the nations. That was the promise, is it not? Chapter 2, Psalm 2 rather. I'm going to make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. He says they're asked on a throne. Is that throne here in, on, on earth? If you were to go to Jerusalem, that's commonly called Zion, would you find a throne there and Jesus sitting on it? You will not. Where, where then is Jesus' throne? It says that it's in Zion. It says that it's on my holy hill. So where is that? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not on Mount Zion. It's not in present-day Jerusalem. It's in the heavenly Jerusalem. It is raised from the dead 40 days later, ascended to heaven, and Scripture says was seated at the right hand of the Father. That was the special place of honor in a feast or in, a, in, in a, the courtroom of a king, you would sit at the right hand of the king. That was the place of honor. Jesus occupies the place of honor because now he has been installed as the king of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is my holy hill. My holy hill is the kingdom of God. You remember Daniel chapter 2, when the, rock, when the rock was carved out of the mountain, and it says that that rock, this is Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that rock was thrown and hit the feet of the statue and crushed the feet and the statue toppled. That last empire, there were four em- iron, thighs of iron, belly of iron, and then the feet of iron and the toes of clay. And what we realized was that that those toes of clay was when Rome, not in the end of the age, under the reign of the beast, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. No, 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 no. Jesus has already struck the feet of the statue. That's not an end-time Roman empire. That was the empire during Jesus' day when he was crucified, or at least tried to be. And then they moved into an emperorship in which... Caesar, Julius Caesar in 63 AD began to, BC, began to establish the Roman Empire, conquering many nations. And it, 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 it incorporated many nations. And it says in Daniel 2 that that would make, actually make the kingdom weak. So the, stat, the rock would strike the statue at its feet. That happened in 30 AD. The Roman Empire under the rulership or emperorship of Caesar. Now, it says that when that statue would be crushed, destroyed, that rock would become a huge mountain that fills the earth. This, if you remember, is God's kingdom. It actually says that in the chapter. In my holy hill, in the Hebrew, hill and mountain generally are, are interchangeable. I mean, if you ever look at Mount Zion, it truly does look like a big hill. It it truly does. It's only a little over 2,000 feet uh, above sea level, and it's kind of like visiting Mount Dora a little bit. It's wow, that that's that that that's a mountain. Okay, but anyway, the the truth though is that this was the capital. Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. King in Jesus occupying the throne of David. This Messiah then, he says to him, you are my son, indeed I, today I've become your father. And it says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. I'm going to just tell you this right now. 
that the great awakening that we experienced back in the 1700s under Jonathan Edwards and the like, I don't believe there's been an equal to, and began to transform a nation. I will have to admit, though, that there were many weeds among the wheat, many that had the pretension of being religious, but were still lost in their sins. America was a Christian nation, but it was also a very religious nation. Religious in the sense that many of them still didn't get this idea of a relationship, a life train like America or like Australia. I was impressed some time ago when Australia stood up and said, we are a Christian nation. I thought, wow, really? Obama had us abandon that phrase about a decade or more ago. And yet Australia is declaring that they are a Christian nation? Wow. Kenya, what, two, three, four years ago, got a new president, and he said, we are a Christian I'm trying to remember the exact title, but it was the Minister of Religion, and the government oversaw how they could be able to facilitate Christianity in their nation. Now, God's desire, though, is not to establish some political kingdom, because this is not a physical kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom, but it will encompass the nations because that is the father's promise to his son. Ask of me and trust me, Jesus. It will be your own possession, Jesus. This is the goal of God. This is where history is marching on so that the nations in this world would submit and stop saying, let us throw off his fetters. Let us throw off and break these chains. We all have nothing to do with God. You remember of a graduation about what, week and a half ago, whatever it was. I got throw out a statistic to you. I was surprised when I read this. Because I was researching there were during the Declaration of Independence, nine universities, all established with the goal of Christianity, the university that would promote Christianity. Harvard was the first one in 1636. 1636. And the, it was a thoroughly, thoroughly Christian mission statement that I read. I was amazed. But the article that I read it in, and then he said this. He said, you know what? Whatever we were in the beginning, today we are not that. If anything, the word that would characterize Harvard, and he said this so proudly, we are an a-religious or a-religious university today. So proudly do we declare this. He said that in the general populace, you will find somewhere between 7 and 12% atheist. Today, and he said this so proudly, we are, we are trying to distance ourselves from religion, from our roots, from Jesus Christ, from God himself. Let us break our chains. Let us break these fetters from off of us. That's what I heard. I was amazed. I believe that God is wanting and desiring and indeed has a plan. And when that will be fully carried out, church, I don't know. It will be before Jesus' kingdom. And so it says here, though, and and this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. It says here, you referring to the Messiah, the Father saying to the Messiah, you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. What is that? And how does that even work? 
what, what's the goal? Isn't the goal to rule benevolent? They'll want to follow you. Why would you want to rule with an iron scepter? Why would you want to dash them to pieces? How will he extend his rule? I'm going to use a term here. You can write this down. I'm going to call it redemptive judgment. Redemptive judgment. Now, if you would follow me, it's just a, a page or a few pages to left in your Bible. We come to Job 42.11. And in Job 42, he says this, because God, God, God had done what he needed to do in Job's life. And he says halfway through verse 11, he says, they, referring to um, his, all his brothers and sisters that knew him, came to him, ate with him, and they comforted and consoled him. He lost his entire family. He lost all of his possessions, gone. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble. The Lord, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. The Lord brought this trouble upon him. And that's how scripture words it. Does that strike you a little odd? It, that is if you've read the book of Job before, because now I want you to turn with me to Job chapter one. The Lord brought this trouble upon him, but we need to fill in the blanks here a little bit. I'm gonna read to you a few verses in chapter one, starting with verse nine. Does Job, this is Satan, speaking to God in God's throne room. Interesting conversation. The enemy speaking to the king of the whole universe. Does uh, Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has him? And he says, of course he's going to serve you. Of course he's going to follow you. I mean, my goodness, who wouldn't? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand, stretch out your hand, God, and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So this is what the Lord says to Satan. Very well then, everything he has is in hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. He took everything that Job owned. He killed his 10 children. Now, in Job 42, it says that this is what the Lord did, but the truth is, the working out of the plan, it was absolutely at Satan's hands. We call this, he will allow people lost in their sin to feed on that sin, to get more distracted, to get more lost, and to be more deader, whatever, to experience that death and that unsatisfaction that the world has to offer. Eventually, Job, the, the Lord allowed Satan to strike Job with a plague of some sort. We don't know. I'm not sure it was the chicken pox. Probably not even the measles. But he, was, he took a sharp piece of pottery and he was scraping the boils. I can't imagine that. In sackcloth, excuse me, in, in ashes, just all over him. His wife turns to him in his utter misery. And he says, why are you still holding on to your integrity, Job? 
I am so glad. Thank you, sweetheart. You've been married to me 35 years, and never have you said, Mike, just curse God and die. Wow, what boldness in a woman, huh? And I'm going to tell you this. I, I, I would venture to say either, I mean, let's be a little empathetic here. She just lost her 10 children. So devastated, out of the flesh, I am sure. He's aware of this. He, they were his kids too. He lost everything, all of his possessions, all of his treasures. And by treasures, I mean his children. But he held on to his integrity, meaning he held on to his faithfulness to follow God. It did not curse him and ask God to take his life in place. And we've been drinking from these broken cisterns and these sewage pipes, the, the stuff that the world has to offer. God says, you know what? Is that really what you want? And that's what you can have. Three times in Romans 1, it says, and God gave them over in their sinful desires to pursue money in your life. I'm going to give you over to that, and you will drink from that dirty water, that poisoned water, that poisoned well, and you will see just how much it does not satisfy. It does not satisfy. In Hollywood, they're filled with those types of people. Not all of them. I didn't say that, but it's filled with them. D.C., filled with these types of people. And in this way, God giving them over to their sins, seeking after, feeding their flesh and their longings and saying, I, I'm, I'm going to only allow God into my life when it's convenient, when I want him to, or when my back's up against the wall or whatever. But other than that, I am going to pursue what I want in life. I want, to be, I want this, and I want this, and I want this, and I want that. And God, this way, I call this redemptive judgment. The world is ruled from God himself. Satan understand it's at his hand. He dashes them to pieces with that iron scepter, and we become broken. God breaks us in his mercy from the toilet. You just be, oh, did he really do it again? And then he licks your face. Oh, great. Sorry, I had to throw that one in there. And so the, the, the truth, though, is that God allowed each of us to experience the emptiness that the world has to offer. Church, it was nothing. God... If you are even there, I am so wearied of the emptiness of this life. I've tasted, book of Ecclesiastes, I've tasted everything that the world has to offer. And, and in Ecclesiastes, he lists everything. It's vanity. Not worth a hill of beans. God's redemptive judgment. How do we then, the world, respond? It's getting distracted keeps getting dead, keeps getting lost. They say that the sign of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. 
Hey, that was me and you. We kept doing the same things, hoping that it would fill that gap, hoping it would fill us with happiness, and it never did, maybe for a moment. But the result was still we were distracted, lost, and still dead. The answer here, though, is be wise and be warned. There, it says, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. You could look through scriptures. Maybe you have a cross-reference, but numerous scripture passages in which it was very proper for the king's servants to kiss the king. That would be a demonstration of homage, a demonstration of submission. He's the king. I'm his servant. So kiss the son, lest he be angry. And this is the end. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I did mention the very beginning of this message that when we were out in the world, and even when we're in the church, there is a spiritual battle that is going on. Do you know what a refuge is? A refuge is like a fortress. When you're out on the battlefield and you just feel over battlefield any longer, where do you go? You go to the fortress, generally on a hill. You run to it and you go there to be safe and secure because it's in, it has these huge walls that the enemy cannot scale. And you're safe there. And so the challenge is the king on my mountain, my holy mountain, there he has a refuge here, a fortress. Come all of you nations into this fortress. Am I stretching it there by saying, you know, refuge, that there is satisfaction? If you don't believe me, turn to Psalm 91. I want us to just look at these few things at the very end of Psalm 91. Psalm, all of Psalm 91 is about treating the Lord as our refuge under his wings. It says you will trust. A thousand will fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you because you are Abiding in his refuge. He says this. I'm going to get there in just one moment. Here we go. He says this. Because he loves me, says the Lord, verse 14, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. Hide ourselves in him. When we are wearied on the battlefield, when we've tried the stuff of the world, when God has even given us over to the desires of our flesh, and we are wearied on the battlefield, we feel broken. We realize that there is nothing in this world that will ever truly bring me happiness. And we are wondering, is there even a God? And if there is, where is he today in my life? And we're on that battlefield, and we're wounded and wearied, and he says, come, blessed are you who take refuge in the king. He'll rescue him. He'll protect him. He'll answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him, and with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, I realize that we immediately will think of this, okay, well, head up. He's going to satisfy him first and foremost with life. Not just long life, life. This is what we're seeking for. 
we, we're wearied by our joy constantly being robbed. Everywhere we go in the world and all that it has to offer, we are wearied by the lack of satisfaction, by the lack of life, by the lack of joy. I will protect you. I will keep you safe in trouble. Are you wearied on the battlefield? Come under my protection. Under my wings, he will trust. In your journey, find refuge in Jesus. Now, can I just suggest to you that it is not only the lost and sick, but at least all of us were, we have found refuge in Jesus, but it is so easy to stray from that, to allow the things of the world to get our attention, to begin to think the way the world thinks again, to think that they will satisfy, to think that maybe I'll just try it the world's way. Maybe I'll give my life to it. I'm going to tell you this, that's not God's way. He wants you to work hard, but he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. Seek God first in everything. And so we've strayed. We've wandered away from his love, from his covenant, from his... We're tasting the world again. Maybe we have been discouraged. We have prayed and we have prayed and we have prayed for something so good. Maybe the salvation of a spouse, a relative, or a child. And that still hasn't happened. Can I be honest with you? Praying for my brother for 15 years, my brother Rob, I got wearied. I came to that. No, I didn't turn away from that. God remembered, though. Remembered the prayers of my mom, especially. And God rescued my brother, Rob. But Satan uses those things in our life. He knows you perhaps better than you know yourself. He knows your buttons. He knows your weaknesses. And he'll pick and pry at those to make you weak and lead you astray. Video of a water buffalo. This little water buffalo and, and all the big water buffaloes gathered around him drinking from a, a, a little pond there. But the lionesses were watching, ready to pounce. The water buffalo began to move away. And what happened to this little baby water buffalo? He got distracted. He didn't see mom and dad wandering off with the rest of the bigger buffalo parents, whatever you call them. And in his distraction... He did not realize that the lionesses had gathered around him and they were ready to fight to the death. And they began to grab a hold of his legs to pull him away and claw him and everything they could to kill him and have him for lunch that day. And as this tug of war was happening, started leading the charge going back, Junior, come on. There, there were little subtitles. That's how I knew what he was saying, right? And so they're calling, you know, they're, they're gathering around him and they're bucking him off. And, and one water buffalo takes one lioness, throws him way up into the air. And at that point, they, the lionesses realize, oh, 
we're up against a formidable foe here. Mom and dad to the rescue. I think we'll just uh, take our chances elsewhere. And the lionesses began to, there was a number of them, began to back to protect this one. Can I just ask you today, do you feel like that little baby water buffalo by yourself, distracted in the things of the world? I'm going to tell you this, that God has the church in place, a family for a reason. And you have spiritual moms and dads and spiritual brothers and sisters. And maybe some of them are your actual moms and dads and brothers and sisters. But as a family, as a chief, he will more than likely send another brother or sister in the Lord to minister to you. But we stray. We stray so easily off by ourselves. And God wants to rescue us once again. You remember in, in John 12, 31, it says, now, has, now is the time for the prince of this world to back was contrasted with when Jesus is lifted up. He will, again, future tense, he will draw all men unto me. And that drawing was a it was a progressive thing. It's been 2,000 years now, church. The driving back of Satan is progressive as well. It didn't just happen at the cross because Satan still is wandering around like a roaring lion seeking to be made to And I'm just going to encourage you today. Find refuge in him. Psalm 23 David said, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Maybe today you need God's rod and staff, you know, as a shepherd with the shepherd's crook. It wasn't one of these tiny things. You, know, you may have like a cane there, you are okay. And it's thick, heavy wood. It's got a little hook at the top. The, st- the rod is the bottom part and the staff is the top part. And you take that rod and you beat a wolf coming at your sheep, he's going to beat him to a bloody pulp if he can. But the rod is also sometimes used on the sheep to nudge and and tap them in the nose and, and move them away from danger. That way it comes around the neck and no matter how the sheep might turn his head, he can't get out of it. And he's pulled to safety. My prayer for you is that if you've been wandering or if you are still in the battlefield and you have never run to take refuge in Jesus, the king of the kingdom of God, today you will allow his rod and his staff to comfort you and to draw, to taste and see how horrible the world is. But he will, if he has to, give you over to it so that you will realize it's utter emptiness. Stop drinking from the toilet of life. Don't do it. Take refuge in Jesus. Can you stand with me? Every morning, you rule from heaven above, and in your mercy, you allow us to experience the utter despicableness of the waters that we have been drinking from in this world. They do not satisfy. 
that the enemy has lured us astray with your rod and staff. Would you comfort us and bring us back to refuge? Would you allow us to be satisfied in the true life that you offer us? Spirit of God, would you speak so deep out there, wounded, wearied, having been struck down in battle, we have come out from under your covering into that battlefield by ourselves. Speak truth to our hearts right now. Spirit of God, speak to our hearts. Call us back that will never satisfy God. Call us by your spirit right now, God. In your mercy, bring us back. Bring us to Jesus, in whom and only in whom there is life and refuge. Bring the nations to us. Show them the emptiness of this world, but the fullness there is in God himself. And God, would you do this in our generation? Father, when we leave here this afternoon, we've heard truth, I believe. Now empower us this week to walk lives on the line. In Jesus' name.